Father in heaven, I need your help this morning. As I look at these verses in Exodus, it just looks like a mountain. And I'm not Superman. I thank you that we do know him. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are equal to this task. We thank you that we have within our grasp through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit the ability to tap into this text and to see it and understand it and be lit on fire by it and, and everything changes everywhere if we understand the doctrine of the love of God. So please help me to confess that I go weak and needy to my task is to understate the case this morning. I've, I don't think I've ever thought like I do right now that I'm not able to do what I need to do. So please come and empower this process of preaching now. In Jesus' name, amen. Since about November of 2012, the, the biblical doctrine of the love of God has been dominating my thought life. And not just what the Bible says about the love of God, but what the Bible says about our love for God and our love for one another in this fellowship and our love for the lost outside of this fellowship. This topic has simply exploded into my soul. I don't know how else to explain it. If you doubt that, you talk to my family. This is all I talk about which is indicting because the Bible says, let us not love in word only, but in truth, in deed. This is all I've been thinking about for about three months now. The reason for that can be traced back to a little series of sermons that we um, heard together in November because that was when we were studying 1 Corinthians chapter 3. For three weeks at Hilltop School in the cafeteria, we studied 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and although Paul does not use the L word in that particular chapter, he does drop the word love 15 times over the course of that letter of 1 Corinthians. Many of those times are in chapter 13, the love chapter. But the reason why the topic of love came so forcefully to my mind while we were studying that chapter is that what Paul is trying to get done in 1 Corinthians 3 doesn't happen without love. Just to repaint this picture, you may remember that 1 Corinthians 3.9, Paul calls the people of God, and so us today, he calls us God's building. You, we, are God's building. And then Paul goes on to refer to himself as a skilled master builder who laid a foundation. So Paul is an architect of Christian fellowship, Paul is a project manager of the construction site called the People of God, and he laid a foundation, and the foundation is Jesus. It's the gospel. The base and the groundwork and the footings of every local church is Jesus. 
Jesus' life, Jesus' teaching, Jesus' suffering, Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, his soon return. So we are God's building. Jesus Christ is the foundation. And then the word of Paul, uh, the apostles and prophets, that's, that's the blueprint. But then comes the all-important question. If all those things are true, how then should we build? With what materials will we construct this building for the glory of God. And Paul says, well, that's up to you. You have some options in front of you. You can build with gold, silver, and precious stones, or you can build with wood, hay, and straw. There's really only two ways to build. You can build a church that will endure and prevail Or you can build a church that will crumble and fail. So what builds up? 1 Corinthians 10.23 warns us that not all things build up. So what is the most excellent way to build a church, Paul? What builds up? And he gives the answer in 1 Corinthians 8.2. You ready? Love. Love builds up. We are God's building. Jesus is the foundation. The scriptures contain the blueprint, but love, love is our raw material. Love is the substance, the stuff with which prevailing churches are built. Which begs one more question. What's love? What is love? Well, to start with, God is love. But here's where it can get tricky because the reverse does not hold. God is love, but love is most definitely not God. I didn't know what that meant three weeks ago when I first read that sentence. The penny began to drop for me about a week ago. I think I understand a little better what that means. God is love, but love is not God. Love didn't create us. God did. We don't worship love. We worship God. Love didn't die on a cross for us. Christ did that. We don't worship love. God is love, but love is not God. So, I'm a music fan. John Lennon wrote, All you need is love. Is that right? It's so close. It's almost right. So here's my couplet. Here's my poetic effort here. All you need is love is not exactly true. All you need is God. He is love to you. All you need is love is not exactly true. All you need is God. He is love to you. I was already faced with the frightening prospect of making love bear a freight it's not designed to bear. I've been thinking about love as the answer to everything over the past three months, and it almost is. 
It almost is, but not everything. If we're going to live out our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ, if we're going to embody our vision of being a God-glorifying, gospel-centered church family that celebrates and demonstrates and communicates the good news of Jesus, then we are going to have to learn from the ground up what the Bible says about love. Nothing could be of more critical importance for us as a church. To begin to do that, I invite you to open a Bible, if you haven't, to the book of Exodus this morning. The Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 34, beginning in verse 5. Exodus 34 and verse 5. Uh, we put preaching calendars in your bulletin last Sunday. And if you haven't gotten one, there should be a few more on the table in the fellowship hall. Please, please take this home. We'll also try to put it on the web. That's one thing we can do for you, too, on the website. But please take this preaching calendar, put it in a place where you can see it, and pray for this series. Not just for me, but for Guy, who's going to be preaching in a few weeks, and Seth will be preaching a little bit later on this season. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 5. If you wanted to use one of the red Bibles in the seats, it begins on page 74 and ends on page 74. Little text today. Exodus 34, we're going to focus our attention on verses 5 to 8. What is love? Well, God is love. And God's love is, number one, outrageously merciful. Amen. God's love is outrageously merciful. At this point in the book of Exodus, God has rescued his people out of the land of Egypt. He has given them his law. And now he's told Moses that it's time for the people of God to set out from the foot of Mount Sinai and begin their journey toward the promised land of Canaan. And Moses tells the Lord that if he is going to lead the people into their inheritance, then he needs to know for certain that God is going to go with them. That's what he says in Exodus 33. And the Lord assures Moses he will be present with him and the people of Israel as they travel. And then Moses, he goes one step further. He says something very unexpected. He makes a request in Exodus 33, 18. Moses says, in effect, I don't just want you to go with us, God. I want to see you. I want to look at you. Exodus thirty-three eighteen, he says, please show me your glory. Now, by the by, a clear evidence that God is love And that he loves Moses very much is that he doesn't grant that request. For God to show Moses his glory would kill him. And it would kill any of us. We're not equipped to look at God. Dave read it for us earlier in 1 John 4. No one has seen God because he's so blindingly beautiful. The Lord tells him in Exodus 33, 20, I can't exactly do what you're asking. You, you cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. But God does the next best thing. He does the loving thing. He takes him, and he puts him into a hillside. And God takes his hand 
and covers Moses up. And then he passes by Moses. And just as he gets beyond Moses, he takes his hand away. And Moses can see his back, the text says. His back parts, some translations say. Literally in Hebrew, it's something like his swoosh. His whoosh. That's what Moses saw. So now we need to drop down to chapter 34, verse 5, which is where this actually occurs. Listen to verse 5 into the first half of verse 6. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. Okay, let's hold up there and note a couple of things here. First of all, note that God came down. Moses went up, God came down. God descended, he condescended, he came down to be with Moses. And the same is true for us today. Please don't think that because we're talking about the love of God over the next 12 weeks that you have this in your back pocket, that you understand this sufficiently, or that you could do it without God coming down. God must come down for us just as he came down to be with Moses. If we're going to know the love of God over this next season, it will be because God came down during our worship gatherings to tell us about himself. God will stoop. He will deign and agree to make himself known to us. Notice secondly in verses 5 and 6 that God proclaimed. I love that. That's my job. He announced, he declared his character to Moses. That's notable for at least two reasons. One is the style of the address. This is not just speaking. This is preaching. God's not sharing here. He's not chatting with Moses. This is heralding. This is not conversation or dialogue. This is what a town crier does. This is, hear ye, hear ye. This is your God. A word from the sovereign king. This is what the city of Mound needs to hear. Behold your God. So it's a heightened and intense form of verbal communication. The second thing just to note is just on the face of it that it's verbal communication. Nonetheless, God addresses Moses' ears, not his eyes. Moses wanted to see God. And not only was that dangerous for Moses' health and would be for ours, it evidently is not the optimum way for God to reveal himself to human beings anyway. Or that's the way that he would do it. His business is not with our eyes. It's with our ears. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing through the word. You realize what this means for us. It means that we are at no disadvantage over the next 12 weeks as we seek to learn the love of God and what our love should look like. We are at no effective disadvantage To know and to love God, we need to see God because God is love. 
But to see God is not to see him with the eyes of your head, but to see him with the eyes of your heart through faith. If you believe the Bible, you will see God over this season. How are we going to behold God? In the same way that little Samuel beheld God in 1 Samuel 3.21. Listen carefully to this verse. 1 Samuel 3.21. The Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Did you hear it? Or more to the point, did you see it? The Lord will appear when with faith we hear his word. So let's paint a little portrait for the eyes of our hearts. Listen to God's self-description of his own character as he preaches to Moses what he is like. You want to know what God is like? Listen to Exodus 34, verse 6, into the first half of verse 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Given the task and the design of this morning's sermon, we're going to have to keep at a very high altitude this morning. There's nothing more that I really want to do than get right next to each of these eight or nine different descriptions and unfold them forever, but we don't have forever. We've got three months ahead of us to explore these kinds of concepts together, so all I want us to do is just let this verse and a half just kind of wash over us and begin to think about this topic together. All of us have conceptions in our mind of what we think God is like. Or in our heart of hearts, what we want him to be like, or maybe what we suspect him to be like. We would be well served in this moment to recognize that Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, is precisely what God is like. This is exactly what our God is like. And this is really good news. All you need is love is not exactly true. All you need is this God. He is love to you. God's love is outrageously merciful. Pastor Maxie Dunham tells the story of a woman who took her friend with her to a photographer to have her picture taken. Uh, the beauty parlor had done its best for this gal, and now she's sitting in front of the camera lens as the photographer is making his final adjustments for the shot. And she said to him, Now just be sure to do me justice. And her friend, who had accompanied her, said with a twinkle in her eye, My dear, what you need is not justice, but mercy. Isn't that true? Is that not what we need before a holy God? Nothing could be more true. What do we need in light of our obvious sinfulness and God's 
blinding holiness and justice. What we need is mercy. We need forgiveness for iniquity, transgression, and sin. God is love, and that love is outrageously merciful. We're going to unfold that like crazy over the next 12 weeks. But it's also true that God's love is, number two, utterly just. God's love is utterly just. When we say that God's love is utterly just toward us, we're not implying that his love is something he owes us or a debt that we are due. What is stunning is that God loves sinners at all. What we deserve is not love. We do deserve justice. Listen now to Exodus 34, verse 6 through the end of verse 7. You'll see the whole picture now. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God's love is outrageously merciful. It's stunning in its scope of mercy and grace and patience and tenderness, sacrificial giving. We cannot measure with existing technology how much God loves us. You have no idea and neither do I. And God is utterly just. This is sometimes hard for us to hold together, isn't it? But I'm not sure why, at the end of the day, when I think about my need for justice, my demand for it from other people, it's a common sentiment in our culture that people believe in a God who is a God of love. But then when the question of justice emerges, or holiness, or the wrath of God, the white-hot anger of God against sin, people are far less certain today that they believe in such a God. Why? Tim Keller once tweeted six words that might connect the dots for you this morning if you find yourself in this category. If you wonder how God could show steadfast love to thousands and yet never clear the guilty, listen to this. Keller tweeted, anger is the result of love. Anger is the result of love. If you understand that sentence, you understand who God is. And you understand what love is. Because God is love. God will by no means clear the guilty. He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the fourth generation. That may sound jarring to you. It may sound horrifying to you. 
But I would simply call our attention to two realities here in verse 7. One is that even God's justice is merciful. Anything we know to be true about God, it has to reckon with the other attributes of God. So God's love is holy, and it's truthful, and it's just, and so on. God's gentleness is also full of justice, and his wisdom is also tempered by all of his other attributes, and so on. All of his attributes have to do with one another. And even his justice, in this case, is merciful. How many generations does God's steadfast love extend to in verse 6? Thousands. Thousands. What this verse pitches in the direction of, Exodus chapter 20, verse 6 says explicitly, God shows his love to a thousand generations of those who fear him. You ever wonder why a parent will raise a child, a parent who loves Jesus will raise a child who loves Jesus, will raise a child who loves Jesus, will raise a child who loves Jesus, and so on? Some of these families in our church, you can drive it back almost all the way to Abraham. Well, you can That's because God makes promises, promises of mercy, not just to individuals, but to families. To a thousand generations, the scriptures say. How many generations does he punish for the sins of the parents? Three or four. In the face of thousands of generations that experience his mercy. Even his justice is shot through with mercy. Second reality I would be quick to remind us of has to do with Keller's statement that anger is the result of love. Would we really want God not to be utterly just? If you haven't entertained a universe in which that's a possibility, you haven't done a very frightening thing. What if God were indifferent toward just injustice? What if God were indifferent toward the guilty? Worse yet, what if God celebrated sin? The justice of God may frighten you, as it does me, but I would submit that the injustice of God would be a reality too awful to contemplate. We don't want a universe like that. We don't have a universe like that. We want the justice of God. We cry out for the justice of God. We do every day, especially when people wrong us. God's love is outrageously merciful, and his love is utterly just. So how do we respond to this, God? We follow Moses' lead. Point number three, God's love is worthy of all our understanding, adoration, and action. God's love is worthy of all of our understanding, our adoration, and our action. If you're going to understand the love of God, if we're going to experience the love of God, what we want to do is have the love of God address our heads, our hearts, and our hands, our convictions, our character, our competence, understanding, adoration, and action. God's love is worthy of that. Moses just heard God preach to him his own character. He just heard him. Moses wanted to see God's glory, and God showed it to him in words. 
God is love. God's love is outrageously merciful and it's utterly just. So in verse 8, we read the response, and I hope it's ours. Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshipped. That's the right response. Moses worshipped. He worshipped at the mere mention of these word pictures. In the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 23, we read, But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Are you looking for God this morning? Are you seeking him? The Bible says that he rewards those who seek him. Are you looking for God? If you are, do you realize what John 4.23 says? If you desire to seek God, then worship him. You know why? Because he's seeking worshipers. People to worship him in spirit and truth. Some of the very best advice I ever got on the front end of my journey with the Lord was this encouragement. If you are looking for God, if you want to seek for God, stop what you are doing and worship him and he will come and find you. Because the Father is looking for worshipers. The Father is seeking worshipers. One final truth to mention about the nature of Moses' worship here. Moses heard. He just heard that God was outrageously merciful and utterly just. And those two realities become the foundation of his, his worship. He just hits the ground and begins to worship. The revelation of the character of God was the spring from which his worship erupted. He just heard what God was like. How much more for those of us who know not only the character of God, but the cross of Jesus Christ. We're several weeks away yet, but this tension between the mercy of God toward sinners and the justice of God toward sinners finds its resolution in one place, and one place only in human history, in the cross. On the cross on which the Prince of Glory died. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sin. And it's that love of God in Christ for us That becomes the basis of our love for him in worship, our love for one another in Christian fellowship as we build a church with this stuff called love, and our love for the lost in terms of evangelism and compassionate outreach. So that almost all we need is love. You see how much love can get done? Almost everything. All you need is love is not exactly true. All you need is God. He is love 
to you. God's love is outrageously merciful. God's love is utterly just, and it is worthy. It's worthy of all our understanding, our adoration, our action. Next week, we're going to get a glimpse into God himself and God's regard for himself. And we're going to ask a a question that you may have never asked, which is this. Does God love himself? That's the question we take up next week. And the yes to the answer to that question becomes the basis of his love for us. His unbreakable, indestructible love for us. If you're with us today and you are a Christian, I want, to, I want to invite you to come into this sermon series expectant that God has something remarkable for you. I have not been interested in this topic, truth be told, most of my Christian life, most of my pastoral ministry. I always thought that I mean, I've heard enough air supply songs to think that love is something other than what it says it is in the Bible. And if you think, you know what, I'm just going to hit cruise control this series, this whole love thing. Love is bloody. Love is terribly costly. The measure of God's love for you in your sin is that he sent his son for you. God doesn't love you because you're lovely. You're not. But God is love, and it doesn't keep him away. He is love. If you're with us today and you want to know more about the love of God, talk to me. Talk to Randy. He's going to be down in front. He'd love to pray with you. If you want to explore what it means that God loves you in Christ, we would love nothing more. Love, nothing more than to help you explore that this day and this season. So next week, intra-Trinitarian love. You have to put on your seatbelt. It's going to be an interesting ride. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, how you love us. Here is love, vast as the ocean. And I pray, Father, that we wouldn't just stick our little toe in the shallow end. I pray, Father, that we would dive in headfirst, that we would unapologetically bathe in and revel in the reality that God is love. And that at profound, more profound depths than we've ever known in our lives, Lord, that we would understand this and it would cause worship genuine worship to spring up in our hearts toward you. I pray that it would just create all kinds of radical care for one another in this church. God, it's, it's very easy to be indifferent toward each other. It's very easy to hate one another. I pray that this church would be a fellowship pulsing with love for one another because love comes from God and then that this would spill over into our city and to our community and around the world as we seek to love people far from you, for that's the way that you love the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.